Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to Your Booked. I'm Daisy Buchanan, Your Book Inspector, showing you the shelves of your favourite readers and writers. This week, we return to North London, the home of some of the wittiest and most waspish writers of the 20th century. The Bloomsbury set, Alan Bennett, and our guest, Elizabeth Day. Prolific and acclaimed, she's the author of four fabulous novels. Her latest, The Party, was a top-selling success. It's the story of a friendship warped by social anxiety, and it's as deliciously dark as it is compulsively readable. Her memoir, How to Fail, is published by Fourth Estate this April and she's the host of a hugely successful podcast of the same name, where she talks to guests including Gina Miller and David Baddiel about what they've learned from their biggest fails and how failure can be transformed into triumph. She's also an award-winning journalist. She's written for pretty much every publication that hasn't been featured in the obscure magazines round on Have I Got News For You? And she has a brand new brilliant column in the mail on Sunday. Obviously, I'm wildly jealous of her, but she's too fun, funny and kind for me to stay that way. She's also as enthusiastic a reader as she is talented a writer, and she's got some seriously exciting reading material on her shelves. Have you ever, ever been in a position where, and as I've come here now to look at your books, have you ever reorganised your bookshelves to impress anyone? That is such a good question. I haven't. And actually, I have to say, it's quite intimate having you here looking at my books. Not in a bad way, but I realise it's sort of what I do when I go into people's houses is I immediately scan the spines on their bookshelves. But I have never reorganised my books. I arrange them in a way that is visually pleasing to me, but that doesn't mean colour coordinated. I don't trust anyone who colour coordinates their books. It means um, organised according to authors and also according to how much I like them. And there are certain books that I don't have in my flat at the moment because... I had to move to uh, a quite a small but perfectly formed flat <laughs> and um, I didn't have enough room for all of my books. So I'm basically paying an inordinate sum of money every month to a storage unit just for my books. <laughs> How did you choose? Was there anything where the door shut and you were like, right, you know, take my money, that's it for a while. And you just thought, no, I must have you back. I'm trying to think now. Like, I think I've got... Um, yeah, there were some copies of an Elizabeth, Elizabeth Jane Howard, who is one of my favourite authors, 
copies of the Caslet Chronicles. I do actually. I think I, see I have. You've got the sea change and of Julius. These look yes. beautiful. These were a friend. Editions. These were a present from a friend from my friend Olivia Lang, who is also a writer. And they are covers, just to describe them to your listeners. They are sort of like a high camp. Like the sea change cover, it has this sort of almost Cyrillic handwriting for the title. And then the figure looks like Quentin Crisp, but is actually a woman. And it's this sort of soft focus background. It's kind of semi-pornographic. Aesthetically, it reminds me a lot of um, Will Young, Like My Fire video. Oh, I love that comparison. Uh, yes, yeah, so so I've when, got those ones, but I don't have my original Caslet Chronicles, which When did are very you precious. start reading Elizabeth Jane Howard? What was your introduction to her? Actually, it was quite late on in life because I remember being at secondary school and um, I was at an all-girls school and I remember people reading the Caslet Chronicles and I hated the covers. And obviously one should never judge a book by one. But they were these kind of painterly naff covers and I was very dismissive and quite snobbish about them. And I sort of dismissed them out of hand. And it wasn't until years later that I was working at The Observer and I became really good friends with a wonderful woman called Edie, who was the editor secretary, who had amazing taste in books. And by amazing, I mean essentially my own taste in books. <laughs> <laughs> and she said to me, I cannot believe you've never read Elizabeth Jane Howard. And she lent me the Caslet Chronicles and I never looked back. So I must have been about 29, 30, and they blew me away. They're incredible books. She's an incredible author. I was lucky enough to meet her. In fact, I'm going oh, to wow. alert you to this Elizabeth Jane Howard on my bookshelf, which is a beautiful edition of The Longview, which was her first novel, which I found in a second-hand bookshop. This is a book society. And when I met her, I asked her to sign it. Cheers, Elizabeth. I can't quite read that. <laughs> so it says, <laughs> will. With mutual respect. From Elizabeth Jane Howard. That is a perfect Isn't that beautiful? And also, can I say this? She's um, started to write mutual and crossed out the first attempt. <laughs> I know. Which maybe she didn't mean mutual. Me. <laughs> um, but she was wonderful and that was hugely exciting. And when I went to interview her, she had a copy of my first novel, Scissors, Paper, Stone, in her bookshelf. Did she mention it? Or did you mention it to you? I didn't mention it, but when I came to write my first novel, um, my publisher said, who do you admire as a writer? Mm. Because we'll try and get a blurb, although it's almost impossible to get blurbs. And I said Elizabeth Jane Howard and Margaret Forster, who were genuinely two writers who I think are phenomenal. And they both have now died, sadly, but they weren't very fashionable at the time. Mm. Elizabeth Jane Howard enjoyed a resurgence because Radio 4 dramatised the Catholic Chronicles. But that was after this. And both Elizabeth Jane Howard and Margaret Forster wrote the most beautiful letters saying nice things about the book. So I knew that Elizabeth Jane Howard had a copy of it. It was amazing. But when I went to interview her several years later and I spotted Scissors, Paper, Stone and I asked her assistant Annabelle about it because I was a bit nervous to ask Elizabeth Jane Howard about (laughs) it. And Annabelle said, oh, that's that's a really good sign because she only keeps the ones that she genuinely likes. I know. Oh, that is the best. I know. She was such a wonderful woman. So how do you feel about when a book that you really love becomes very popular or there's a resurgence? Do you feel like, yes, everyone, I'm so I'm so glad everyone's going to discover this. Or is there a little creeping element of snobbery where you're like, no, mine? <laughs> uh, both. I mean, I think... Um... I I find it annoying when a dramatisation is done badly and I cannot stand a TV or film tie-in cover. I'm very snobbish about that because I'm like, I think you'll find that I had my own imagination, I had my own vision of who these characters were and I have the original copy of the book. 
But in terms of Elizabeth Jane Howard, because she was so, I feel, overlooked in her life because she had the misfortune to be married to Kingsley Amis, who was a horror to be married to, and also because he's a white man, uh, his reputation overshadowed hers. And I don't think that that's fair. So actually, I'm really happy when people discover Elizabeth Jane Howard and, like me, come to it and have a preconception and have that preconception smashed because she's an amazing pro stylist. And when I started writing fiction myself because I'm entirely untrained. I've never done a creative writing course or anything. There were certain things that I went back to see how she had done. So a switch in tenses in the para- in a single paragraph, can you do that was my question. And it turns out she did do it and, and she taught me a lot just on that kind of craft level. So um, you talk about her being in your eyeline when you were a teenager and thinking, no, thank you. What sort of a young reader were you? Can you remember any books being passed around at school or what you were sharing and borrowing? Yes, I was a voracious reader, always have been. I'm never not reading a book still. And um, I grew up in rural Ireland and so reading was kind of my entertainment and I would go into our garden, into a massive rhododendron book and set up a den and read Nancy Drew mysteries and Agatha Christie. But the book that I remember being passed around at school, and I'm sure other people say this and it marks me out as a certain generation, but it was Judy Bloom's Forever. Ah, So much to learn about sex and Ralph and everything and... um, French kissing and I went through a massive Judy Bloom phase she's a a, a great writer and she taught me an awful lot actually not just about sex and relationships but about female friendship and so that one I remember being passed around. I mean, I've reread her recently and I'm always taken aback in a really good way about how perceptive she is about things like class and especially somewhere like America where I think it's easy to say, well, they don't really have a, a class system as such, but all of those subtleties and the way she observes as a child would and sees those details. That's so interesting because I've never reread her as an adult. But I do recall there was one of her books and I think it was called Dini and it was about a girl in a back brace who had... either terrible scoliosis Mm. or a terrible skating accident I can't remember but it was so affecting to me that idea of someone not easily being able to move and I think those kind of things when you're a young girl or early teenager they're really really useful and integral to developing your sense of empathy. I think so that even if you know I think it's so important for people to see themselves in books but also It's so important for every reader to see everyone in a book. It's important to know there are people who are like you and people who aren't like you. Definitely. And that's something that I seek to do as a writer as well. I mean, my maxim is E.M. Forster's Only Connect. Like, if I can connect with a reader on any level, and if there's some flash of fellow feeling that makes them think of something that they've experienced in a slightly different way, um, or to revel in an experience in, in the newness of the retelling of it, then I've done my job. I was going to get a tattoo of Only Connect somewhere on, <laughs> on my body until someone pointed out that it's also the name of a very naff quiz programme on BBC Two presented by Victoria Corrin. And I was like, OK, I'll wait for that to go off air. I mean, if you got the tattoo, you'd definitely get on the celebrity special. Well, there's a swings and roundabouts, exactly. Do you know what I'm desperate for? I'm desperate to get on University Challenge, the alumni <gasps> what edition. What would your specialist subject be? Well, you don't need to have oh. one in University Challenge. That's Sorry. mastermind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sounding like a quiz and, expert. And with that, there is no way I'm getting anywhere near either show. <laughs> I'll tell you what, my, my specialist subject for mastermind would probably be The Archers. Oh. I've been listening to it since I was four and I've read all the... <laughs> 
read all the books. So there are Archer's books. Are these in storage? They will be in storage from my parents, from the house I grew up in. Yeah. So that I was a very strange child who had two obsessions, cats and the archers. And when you're a child with obsessions... Cats the animal or the musical? Cats the animal, (laughs) yeah. But when when you're a child and you have those obsessions, it means that they last forever and people always give you like Christmas presents. Thematic Christmas presents. So I got a lot of archers memorabilia, including these books that (laughs) were... They told the story of the episodes of the archers that I had missed from not having been born. <laughs> so, from 1940 onwards, they were just kind of novel versions of the soap. Do you ever find it hard to draw the line between being really inspired by a writer and what they do and writing and thinking, I'm actually imitating them? That's a, such a good question. Yes. I'm not one of those writers. I know some authors don't read fiction when they are writing fiction. Mm. And I'm not that like that at all. I really need constant fuel and inspiration. And um, I have noticed a couple of times certain turns of phrase have been influenced by whatever writer I'm reading at that particular moment. But I don't think it's a bad thing because I don't think other people notice it. And I and it's sort of like a little private joke that I have with myself. And And I'm a bit like an Easter egg, I guess, where if you've got a reader who sees it, they're sort of, it's an extra intimacy, an extra connection. Exactly. And there's also the wonderful serendipity that happens when you've written a book and then someone else tells you that they've seen something in it that you didn't Mm. anticipate being part of it, that it reminds them of a book that you might never have read. So my second novel, Home Fires, um, my friend Olivia, again, the one who gave me the camp, Elizabeth Jane Howards, she read it and said it reminded her of Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf, which I had never read uh. at the time, which is an incredible comparison. Um, and I'm very grateful for it. But I hadn't read Mrs. Dalloway and then I read it and it actually really took me aback how many similar plot pivots there were. Even the setting, it was sort of amazing. I mean, if I could write you know, a tenth as good as Virginia Woolf, I'd be very happy. <laughs> so I'm not comparing myself in that way, but... It was interesting. I think you're just tops. Thank um, you. Are there any books here that you have never read or any books that um, you're quite embarrassed that you haven't read that you feel you should have read by now? There are because I get sent, as I'm sure you do, Daisy, so many book proofs to read for review. So there are some of them up there that I'm just looking at. There's that one up there, the T.C. Boyle, the Terranauts, oh. which I totally intend to read, but I just haven't read it yet. Is that, it, are you put off by the fact that it is a, a beautiful big blue hardback and you feel like it's a bit like knowing a film's over two hours, like I'm going to, yeah. when I'm in, I'm in. I don't mind that. It's just that I hadn't read any T.C. Ball before and I think I was, I wasn't. Well, you're never gonna. <laughs> I know. I think, I'm not put off by it, but I know that he comes with a certain reputation and I, anyway, it's just one of those things that hangs in the corner like an unfulfilled promise. And there's this one that I feel guilty about, Neil Mukherjee, The Lives of Others, which I know is meant to be amazing and I feel particularly guilty about it because my mother lent it to me and I still haven't given it back and I still haven't read it. And then uh, the other one that I feel guilty about is Lanark by Alistair Gray. So that was given to me by someone I was having a fling with. (laughs) And And then the fling ended and I was just left thinking, I don't want to read that. And also... It just looks quite dense and off-putting. Have you, what, have you ever given someone a book and either regretted it or done it with intentions other than you'll love this? Have you ever done it to kind of to impress or to be a bit obtuse? Actually, I don't think I have. 
I remember buying a book for a man that I liked who I'd only just met and it was a rather beautiful, he was about to go to New York and it was a rather beautiful book which had kind of maps, period maps of New York from the 1950s and um, I'm really glad I did ended up not giving that to him because A, didn't he didn't deserve it as it turned out B, I'd only just met him so it would have been way too much and C, it was actually a really beautiful book and I'm glad I've still got it but generally speaking, I give books with love. Like, I actually want someone to feel the way that I do about them. Um, so that, so yeah, I haven't done it to prove myself in any way, I don't think. Uh, which of these books do you think you've picked up the most? Is it an Elizabeth Jane Howard or are there others that are quite... That, um, uh, Muriel Spark is really beautiful. Yeah, that's, uh, yes. So that's... This is... Uh, the double Memento Mori yeah. and the Girls of Slender Means. The Girls of Slender Means being a slender book. So it yes, exactly. Um, this is. See, I, I do love a dad joke. Yeah. <laughs> I um, I think I bought this in a secondhand bookshop again, and I just really, I just love. It was two pounds. Yeah, I love um, vintage covers, and and these two books actually, I would have put the picked these up a lot because they were my grandfather's. So they're enormously oh, wow. special to me, partly because it's um, Aldous Huxley, who's m- one of my. Uh, is he one of my favourite authors? I love I love his work. And he used to be one of my favourite authors, but I don't feel like I've read enough. These are in incredible condition. Aren't they amazing? So we have uh, Beyond, Beyond the, the Mexique Mex- Bay. And they're albatross editions. And Beyond the Mexique Bay is in a kind of turquoise greeny colour. And then Two or Three Graces, which is a kind of mustard orange. It's that classic kind of mid-century mustard orange. And they're very special because they've got my grandfather's uh, name inside in his hand. And they smell nice. Oh, may I? Yeah. They just have a nice old book smell. Mmm. They do a sort of a... Musty. Like a coolness there. Beyond the... Like a... Exactly. It's, a, it's an elegant dust. Yes. It's like an autumn leaf dust. Yeah. It's perfectly Elegant fit. dust. How it, what it is your policy on writing in books? Do you do much scribbling and folding over of pages? No. No. <laughs> I'm actually. I don't believe. I'm you, actually. Ex- no, I'm like an extremist. I, uh, I cannot bear it when people break spines. I am very. Uh, no, I never scribble. On uh, and the rare occasion that I'd scribble would be like if it were a book proof and I was reading it for review and it didn't feel like the finished product. But I'm so reverent of finished products and I don't judge anyone else for <laughs> not being like me. I I don't really massively dog it although I have started because I don't write if there's a quote or something that I particularly like I will turn the corner down of the page and that's quite nice because that's the sort of voyage of rediscovery so when I pick up a book again I'm like oh what did I find interesting that's in this a, particular that seems page like progress in your you know perfectionist <laughs> very rigid I know well, also I ever, read in the bath have so you ever lent a book to someone and had them return it in a state that you uh, would describe as fit only for reading worse I've lent books and never had them returned <gasps> like what I'm thinking thinking of one at the moment but this isn't fair because I've only just lent it to her but it's a book that I love so much that I almost felt physical pain handing it over and it's a book called Educated by Tara Westover which is a a fairly new memoir and she was raised in a Mormon fundamentalist family and had no birth certificate her family didn't believe in hospitals medicine and she basically educated herself and ended up with a phd from cambridge and she's incredible and the book is so beautifully written and barack obama just chose it for a summer reading list anyway i lent this book this treasured book with lots of kind of dog ears on it to a dear friend of mine 
<laughs> and and I don't think she realised that for me it's basically like handing over a newborn kitten. If you're listening, you know it. who you are. <laughs> I don't want to mention my name because I feel so bad. But then I interviewed Tara Westover for my podcast and she gave me her paperback, <gasps> which I don't, and she signed it. So I've now got, thank goodness, I've got a copy, just oh. not the original one with all the dog ears. And this is, I can't get to the signature because there are pages and pages of people saying how great this book is. <laughs> to Elizabeth, thank you for a lovely interview. So yes. Please say hello when you're in New York. I that like to think we're best friends now. Well, that's definitely, but I think you could sort of, you know, go to her house. Should I just fly to New York just say, for that? You said, you said I could come. You said I could stay for two weeks. So we have... Uh... Oh, yeah, they're quite interesting as well. So they're my other grandmother. I inherited those little books from her and I don't really know anything about them. They're, they're a series of sort of rather beautiful kind of moleskin-covered books, some of which are in French and are kind of um, French poetry and I've never really done anything about them other than think they're rather pretty uh, and I wonder whether she had them as a child or they look like very that. kind of like things that have been touched a lot but they're almost as much of a decorative object as, yes as something to read yeah down here oh you have um Beadle and Shay lots of um dictator chat yeah that was written by a friend of mine so that's I have read it and I'm in the acknowledgement, so that's why it's there. It's a kind of history of the friendship between Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. Not my normal reading <laughs> matter, but very good. But I did, was there anything about sort of their lives that you thought? Because, you know, occasionally, I'm not, I don't read a lot about dictators, but when I do, I'm like, actually, it's probably important that I know how these people think. Yeah, I didn't know that they were friends. So this is before the Motorcycle Diaries became a film. And actually, Cy, my friend who did this book, um, uncovered a lot of that material. We should say his name in case people want to buy this. It's Simon Reed Henry. Yeah. I, I didn't, uh, yeah, and I didn't know that they had this um, friendship that was one of, well, Che, I think, looked at Fidel, Che and Fidel, as I call <laughs> them in the biz. <laughs> yeah. Che looked at Fidel as a bit of a mentor and really admired him. And uh, yeah, so that surprised me. And it's not a kind of area of history I know that much about. It's nestling next to In, P- In Pieces, the Sally Field memoir. Uh, and that's also got a signature in it from Sally because I interviewed her recently at the oh, London Literature did. Festival. Yeah. In um, event to Elizabeth. Thank you, thank you. More than I can say. Exo always, Sally Field. I know. Sally Field. Uh, she was great. So that was exciting. Um, but, I mean, that's... You know, the life she's lived and, and what she's talked about. How, and I'm obviously a very, very experienced journalist and interviewer, but how do you sort of approach someone who's, who's made themselves that vulnerable in their book? Yeah. And then, do you think there was a difference for her talking about it on the page and talking about it in front of that many people and really seeing who was who's listening? Or did you definitely feel that was challenging? Or mm. you, do you think she was, she had a bit of a a way of expressing it because she'd written it before. I'm not putting that very No, well, you are. And that's incredibly astute, actually, because um, she did feel very vulnerable talking about it. And she's just been on this big book tour around the UK and the States. And so she was quite exhausted by the time I met her. And in the book, she talks about an inappropriate relationship with her stepfather. But she also talks about 
what she felt was her part to play in it as a young child and a teenager. So it's really uncomfortable territory and she does it very well. And um, I could tell, and I spoke to her publicist beforehand because I was so aware that it was very sensitive. And her publicist said, you know, she'll absolutely talk about it. She just doesn't want that to be the whole focus of the entire Mm. interview. So I was very careful to bring it up in context because actually that book in pieces is about so much more. It's about the, the women in her life and how important her mother and her grandmother were to her and how important acting was in sort of her... Uh, self-discovery so she did talk about it and actually um I think once she realized I wasn't out to get her (laughs) um she began to trust a bit more and therefore really opened up and was completely wonderful and fluent and engaging and a delight to interview and she got a standing ovation at the end from 631 people which is quite something to behold as someone who (laughs) I don't ever get standing ovations and it's kind of amazing being on stage when that happens. Well, let's, next time, I'll come. If you could organise that, Daisy I'll, and Dale. I'll stand up. If you could both do that at the end, maybe at the end of this podcast, <laughs> just a little just round of applause. <laughs> Thank you. Some confetti. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We'll be back to Elizabeth soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book so good that paying the cover price alone feels like an act of daylight robbery. This week, my steal is The Water Cure by Sophie McIntosh, a dreamy dystopian horror story of three sisters, Leah, Grace and Skye, struggling to survive in a future world where men have become literally toxic to women. Hiding in their refuge at the end of the world, they try to find power in pain while protecting themselves from the threat of outsiders. This book is bizarre and brilliant, and Macintosh is a writer of such richness and depth that her prose has a hallucinogenic quality. I felt as though I was on drugs and under a spell as I read. It was long-listed for the Booker Prize, and I'm certain she has a long, glittering writing career ahead of her. The Water Cure is unlike anything I've ever read in the most wonderful way. If you like The Virgin Suicides, I think you'll adore this, but it really is a unique book. 
The Water Cure was published in May 2018 by Hamish Hamilton. It's on sale now and I really loved it. Now, back to Elizabeth. This is my overspill. So, um, Lily Allen, My Thoughts Exactly, which um, is, that's, that's something I'm embarrassed not to have read yet because I long to read it. Yeah, I'm reading not that in preparation for interviewing her and I cannot wait to read it because I think... She's great. And I loved hearing her on Desert Island Discs a few years ago. And I loved her new album. What do you think is the the line between being a journalist and being an incredibly nosy person? Yeah. What is the impulse <laughs> that makes us want to read about other people's lives, do you think? I think it... I think it actually comes from a sense of feeling like I didn't belong, which I know is ironic for me to say as like a white middle class, <laughs> extremely privileged female. But I... I speak with an English accent. I was born over here and I grew up in Northern Ireland and my accent always really marked me out and I ended up not really wanting to speak that much, particularly at secondary school, which wasn't a particularly happy time. And it, the, the the flip side of that was that it made me into a real listener and an observer of other people. And it made me uh, desperate to understand what made other people tick so that I could be part of their group. And And I think that's what prompted it. And I do find other people endlessly fascinating I find family dynamics really interesting Mm. I just like understanding what makes someone who they are their pathologies I find that really interesting so there's that is that a noble answer or or a real answer that's a really really great answer (laughs) I think I think that is both of those things I suppose it's interesting I think always to find out about a person's vulnerabilities not because you want to emphasize how weak they are but I think because we're just so acutely aware of our own that so often that's the way into empathy absolutely and I think there's that thing isn't there that people say that you you can never fully understand what pain someone else is carrying so if someone is really rude to you on the tube try not to be incredibly angry towards them because they might be going through something that you know nothing about and and that fascinates me and I'm sure you're like this Daisy because you're so insightful but I love people watching and actually one of the reasons I've got a fairly low uber rating is because I don't always want to talk I actually just want to look out of the window or imagine someone's life and a lot of journalism and a lot of what I do is about talking and interviewing and asking questions and having conversations and sometimes I really like to dial down the volume on that and just observe for a bit and I think as writers you need to keep doing that because otherwise where do you get your material from (laughs) you need to keep being invested in real life definitely um and especially because you've written your, your memoir, haven't you? Which is coming out in... Oh God, it feels so scary when you say memoir. Oh Sorry. I, I can't, I just, I, uh, can you've we just call your, it something else? Your book about your life that has yes. really good helpful advice about how we learn from the challenges life throws at us. Excellent, I'm very excited about it. It's a it. bit about my life, yes. Did you think, is there any part you thought, finally, my thoughts, my time to shine? Or did you think, oh, normally I'm asking people about their stuff. This is horrible. Um... In between the two. So I never thought, hooray, I get to write this about me. In fact, it's a book that I never intended to write because I launched this podcast called How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, <laughs> available in all good podcast charts. Um, and I just did it as a as sort of as a passion don't project. Don't switch over. No, no, don't. This is amazing. <laughs> and I remember us talking about it and I know that this is a passion project for you. And I really just did it as a podcast. I conceived of it as eight episodes and one season I was like I'm just going to put it out there I'm going to pay for it with my own money 
and see what happens. And what happened was this incredible snow snowball effect where I had loads of people getting in touch saying that it spoke to them because it's all about what we can learn from the toughest times in our life and the mistakes that we've made rather than dragging ourselves down into a slab to spond. It's about actually that's where all the best lessons are learned. And I got a book deal, which I didn't expect to get off the back of that. And the book is called How to Fail. And it's part memoir (laughs) and part what I've learned from the podcast interviews and the interviews I've done professionally as a journalist about how people handle failure. And I was actually quite panicked about writing it because although I'm a journalist, I've only ever written fiction books. And so to do long form nonfiction was a completely different challenge. And, and I wasn't sure how I'd feel about it. But then when I got into it, I found that I'd actually been spending a lifetime thinking these thoughts. And I don't know if you found this when you wrote your memoir, but it was suddenly like, oh, I actually do have things to say. And it all, and, and when it when I was doing the chapters that I really fell into, it just kind of came out of me in a really fluid way. That makes me sound like I'm menstruating. <laughs> I was just bleeding onto the page. Um, and actually, I really enjoyed Dr. it. Dr. Stewart, tranquil tea, guys. Yeah. We've just been talking about our favourite herbal teas. But actually, so it was, it was in between the two. I was kind of nervous. But then when I was in it, I, I, I found it really liberating not having a word count and not having a newspaper or magazine editor saying can you add in more here and can you focus on this angle and not that angle it was nice having just my own voice to express it's really weird isn't it I think this that I suppose all books one way or another is people editing their lives or even if it's a, a novel or if it's totally made up or you know with sort of biographies as well that you know the idea that Fidel Castro lived a life that is that will fit in the book is yeah. quite hard. And how do you decide what is, what's interesting and yeah, and what isn't? Well, that's why I've always been terrified at the thought of doing biography. Although I love, love, love reading biographies, particularly if they're by Claire Tomalin, who I think is exceptional. Okay, right, let's go okay. through to the other room and look at some books from totally natural standing. <laughs> So there's books here on my bedside, and then I've actually oh. just I've actually just taken loads of books to the charity shop because I was so overwhelmed. So I do. This is just my excuse to generally sneak yeah. around your room. <laughs> I like your um, your headboard picture. <laughs> okay, this is going to make me sound like the most rampant narcissist, but the the poster above my bed is a reproduction of um, a tube poster that ran on London Underground for my latest novel, The Party. And I'd never had a tube poster before and I've always wanted one. And so the amazing marketing team at Fourth Estate printed this one out. And um, yes, it's above my bed, as if I'm suggesting that what happens in my bed is the party. (laughs) (laughs) I like that very much. And this is where the magic happens. Exactly. If I had a tube poster, I would wallpaper my house. Okay, that makes me feel better. Thank you. Everywhere. I was thinking, like, about getting um, book covers um, to have in my bathroom. I was like, oh, no, but would that be really, like... No, I think you should definitely do that. Definitely. Because, you know, I never... I was like, yes, you should have that. That's really cool. You should claim your successes and the things that you're proud of. And also, if you you have a bathroom that you could hang things in, then that's perfect. If you can't brag in your own bathroom. Exactly. (laughs) So, here, let's have a look at the the bedside table ones. They're only under the bed. Uh, yes, um, but they're all mine. They're like uh, copies of my novels that I haven't been able to give away. <laughs> so, how to be right? That's quite an aggressive <laughs> book. <laughs> Standing by your by your advert, yeah. going advert right. <laughs> 
these look just to I'm reading this one, but I'm not reading like these are the ones that I have yet to read. So this is James. Do you say O'Brien or O'Brien? O'Brien. It is O'Brien. Yeah, because um, I'm interviewing him and I'm reading this book. It's called How to Be Right in a World Gone Wrong, and it's by James O'Brien, the LBC talk show host. And I have to tell you, this book is brilliant. It oh. is so clever and wears its learning so lightly and so funny. And he basically dismantles homophobes, Brexiteers, uh, ignorant Islamophobes in in each. There's a chapter for each of those topics and it's really, really good. Now this um, Damien uh, Dibbon, tomorrow, this has got a beautiful cover. It's got a dog on it, which I like. It's beautiful, isn't it? So this is uh, a lovely man who whose husband I met at a film screening recently and his husband sent me this book and it's about a time-travelling dog and I haven't read it yet and that's one of the ones that I feel extremely guilty about not having read because I'm going for dinner at their house tomorrow evening. But I've told Damien that I haven't read it yet so I, and he's read The Party and I feel terrible. Well, tell him I will read the story of the time-travelling dog because that Okay, sounds... and Rachel Joyce recommends it and says it's utterly captivating so I'm sure it'll be brilliant. And this Adele uh, by Leila Simani, I've heard a lot about that it's quite a um, a dark book. Adele is thinking like a drug addict, like a gambler. She's been so pleased with herself and not yielding to temptation for a few days that she has forgotten about the danger. This sounds like quite a saucy book to have <laughs> beside your bed yeah, the day. I can't wait to read that, actually. I've heard such great things about Leila Simani generally, and I heard her interviewed on the high low, and she sounded great. Because so. I understand this is a book about a sort of sexual compulsion. Yes, I think it sounds like but. it is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, most French books are, aren't they? They're all French novelists. They're all about sexual compulsion of women. Ooh, well, there's our... Um, that, that's what we're going to... This is the day. Think yeah. The French are all sexually compulsed. They're all at it. Let's, uh, let's go around the corner. Yeah, so that's a very inconveniently placed shelf. All of your books are very... Um, for our purposes... They're not embarrassing. No, they're all they're all sort of beautiful and very literary. And I want to know, like, where are your Mills and Boone? Like, do you, have, have you ever... Do you read... I don't know, the books that we are perhaps as women socialised to feel embarrassed yeah. about or do they not yeah, I, appeal to you? No, they the... do. I've read I've read them is is the reason that they're not here, is that I think that I went through a frenetic <laughs> phase in my teenage years where I read all of the Ginny Coopers, which I'm obsessed with and I think they're incredible books. I think she's a brilliant writer. Um and I I've I'm trying to think, I don't know if I've ever actually read a whole Mills and Boone. I've definitely read bits of one, but fun fact, I do have a Mills and Boone book dedicated to me because one of my school friends became a Mills and Boone authoress and she told me, you're not allowed, at that stage anyway... I like you, authoress. I know, I just felt like it was a very Mills and Boone <laughs> it's phrase. Mills and Boone world. And she be. wrote a Mills and Boone book and she dedicated me very, very kindly and at that stage you weren't allowed to dedicate a Mills and Boone to a woman, so I'm only there by my initials, it's to E.D., <gasps> It's, why is that? That's amazing. Is that because they were terrified of any sort of sapphic undertones or overtones? <laughs> being like, you're supposed to think the about the shake. Yeah. <laughs> think about the rippling torso of the man <laughs> on the camel. Um, Oiled. I think maybe they didn't want to ruin lots of the baby fantasy. oil in the desert in Mills and Boone world. Oh, I know, it's strange, isn't it? An entire oasis just of baby oil. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably why. I've never read Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, but I do think that my first sexual initiations in a way, like the first real 
window into sex that I had was through books. Um, and specifically the Thornbirds. Ah, yeah. yes. Is there anything there that you remember reading about and not fully yes. comprehending and thinking, oh, that's a weird thing about sex and then learning? Yes, completely. So first of all, the Thornbirds, my granny, I remember watching it religiously, ha ha ha, because there's a priest who becomes defrocked. Anyway, uh, and then I remember her having the book and I remember looking at the book and I remember reading in the book about people sleeping together. And I genuinely thought, until I was 12, that just meant sharing a bed. I was like, oh, they're sharing a bed. I'm naughty. (laughs) I just didn't think there was anything else. And I swear to God, Daisy, I found out about the facts of life from a biology lesson in my secondary school where they explained what actually happened during sex. And I was so taken aback. I was like, oh, it's like this really physical thing where... One is penetrated, and it's not that they're just lying in bed clasping themselves romantically. Because There's I, this whole act to it. I guess the, <laughs> the shape of it, as it were, when you're like, oh, but you're both lying in bed like how How do you get? <laughs> oh, no. I feel I like, I look back at myself and think, oh, how sweet, how unsullied and naive I was that I had to find out in an actual biology lesson. <laughs> I had all these very romantic notions. Um, from the Thornbirds and various other. So you came away from the Thornbirds, no, not thinking any sex. No, just, such but thinking that was sex. And the other one that I read was Barbara Taylor Bradford. Again, oh. my granny had the had the books. I was riveted by Barbara Taylor Bradford. Oh my gosh, it's such an epic sweep that novel, A Woman of No Substance. Or oh, no, sorry, Woman of Substance. Oh. <laughs> Freudian slip there. Freudian slip. Um, I thought that was great that book, and she's still like alive and churning them out isn't she still writing and still working she's amazing yeah it's interesting i think the idea that my grandparents would have even known what sex was was just like no surely not and then obviously all that material is there yeah now my my granny was amazing like she was swiss and just such a terrific person in so many ways that i've never met anyone quite like her ferociously practical incredibly energetic so vibrant like the most fun person at a party absolutely bloody loved dallas and dynasty and prisoner cell block h and all of those knots landing and that and i remember watching those programs with her and she had no judgment like there was no judgment of me watching them or anything and it was really wonderful it was like actually a really treasured memory watching trash tv with my granny who was also really into kind of ballet and the finer things in life because I guess what's so lovely about books is you can it's so intimate and you're having this cultural experience but it's one of those rare things where people aren't watching over you and seeing Mm. how you react it's entirely private yeah Unless you get those awful people who read over your shoulder in the tube. Although I am one of those people because I'm a compulsive reader. So whenever I see like print, I need to read it. <laughs> so I'm aware as much as I know that when it's happening to me, I also perpetrate it. It's terrible. I remember doing that at school, like queuing up for assembly and things. And if there was like a sign on the door where there was like cleaning supplies, I'd be so bored. I'd be like, I'll see if I can read it backwards. and oh, Just anything, yeah. any text. Yeah. Did you see, there was a news story, I think it was, um, was it in the Antarctic? And there were two scientists and one of them kept telling the other one the ends of the books that they were reading. So the person who was doing the reading stabbed him. I think it was that guy. I can totally relate. I mean, how (laughs) irritating would that be? And what's that in When Harry Met Sally, isn't it, where... Harry always reads the end of a book first mm. because he's worried that he might die before he gets to the, <laughs> the final page. 
I'm not like that at all. I can't. I I I really need to have uh, the final page be a surprise. Yeah, how annoying. <laughs> I just want to say I don't agree with stabbing. Sorry, I feel very bad for that man who got stabbed. That's terrible. Um, Elizabeth is not judging French people no. and she does not condone acts of violence. I'm painting myself into a terrible corner here. I do give up on books now because I just, I'm very aware of my own mortality and the fact that there's only so much time I have left to read all the amazing books that I haven't yet read and that I want to read. All of those incredible classics. I've still not read Bloody War and Peace or War and Peace. <laughs> Bloody War and Peace is like the slasher version. Um, That's where they find out the ending and they go around yes, stabbing exactly. <laughs> But I do feel now, like I, I can get a good sense of whether I'm going to like a book within the first 100 pages. And if it's not grabbing me by then, then I don't think it's doing the job of a book. And I'm, um, I'm really not snobby about literature now. And I do think that people can be quite snobby about plot mm. and telling a story and that a lot of the books that get the major literary prizes are sometimes quite hard to read and there's an assumption that difficulty means serious intent and therefore must be taken seriously by the reader as well. And and I just I feel that actually a great work of literature should be a great read and should be accessible. I mean, that's what Dickens was doing. Yeah, I think that's a lot about comedy, that I think that we enjoy anything that makes us laugh. And because it feels so easy and so immediate, we think, oh, well, that's that's worth less when I think it's the hardest thing to do. Totally. And you're brilliant at that, at writing that in that tone. And so is Dolly Alderton. Mm. And it's such a hard thing to do. It's so hard to do that I'm not entirely sure that you can learn it. Like, I think it's a God-given talent. And... And as you say, the great mistake that some readers make is thinking, oh, well, this is just funny and therefore easy. Books should be hard and a bit miserable. I'm having too nice a time. It can't be good. Do you think that's maybe quite a British thing as well? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. That's an interesting idea, though. Um, And I suppose there are so many books that people love, but they're put, put off because so many people are so keen to make the act of reading a bit mystical and a bit difficult and I wonder whether it's because I think I think I can speak for both of us and say we were we were nerds and books are our friends and now we're like you you had a perfectly nice time growing up you don't need this like I need this yes that's that's so true I yeah I remember John Banville won the Booker Prize ages ago and I can't, I want to say it was called The Sea, The Sea, but it wasn't because that's an Iris Murdoch book, but it was something like that. And I tried my hardest to read it and I so wanted to like it and I just didn't. And actually, I just think you have to forgive yourself for that and be fine with it and be clear about, you know, you can think as long as you know yourself, then you can have a valid opinion. I think that's a really lovely thing about knowing that you're a proper grown-up is that you do have taste and that you don't, not everything has to be for you and you don't have to make yourself for it. Yeah, exactly. And I often think, I worry that I just love everything. Like, that's great, you're fed up. <laughs> and if I don't like something, oh, it's fine. I do, I'm a person with, with texture yeah. and with a bit of difference. I'm I, not just generally very enthusiastic. I know exactly what you mean. But recently I did um, Saturday Review on Radio 4 and we had to read the new Barbara Kingsolver novel, which is called Unsheltered. And I really disliked it. But I disliked it to such an extent that I was completely certain about how I felt. And like you, I was like, you see, I do have judgment. (laughs) (laughs) I do have literary merit. (laughs) Do you feel 
always confident as a writer or do you ever sit down and think, oh no? Oh my God, I sit down and think, oh no, every single time I sit down and write, genuinely. Uh, I don't feel confident. I feel confident that I have learnt the craft of journalism because I've been doing it for quite a while now, like 17 years. So I sort of know what boxes to tick and I know how to structure a piece. But no, I don't feel confident at all. And in a way, that's probably... I do think it's a good thing because every time you're sitting down in front of a blank screen, you are creating something and you need to be able to create create it anew. And if I felt like I knew what I was doing all the time, it would just run along a train track, whereas actually it's much more like Spaghetti Junction and and I'm building it with straw and like an old dog collar. Like it's, it's so mad. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you change direction, do you have an idea of where you're going or are you as surprised as the reader? I thought, oh, they've done this. I think I can. I'm capable of being as surprised as the reader. And before I wrote books, I always thought, oh, God, those authors who say. And then this thing happened and my character took me on a journey I didn't expect. And I was like, as if. But actually, with my first novel, that's exactly what happened. There is a pivotal plot twist that really defines the entire book that I hadn't anticipated and that suddenly and actually was very influenced by Elizabeth Jane Howard, funnily enough. And it just pops up on the page and I was and I, I can remember it now and my heart started beating like more strongly and I thought, oh my God, this is what's gonna happen and this is right. And so that's that's the one time that that's happened so clearly to me. Um, and and generally I do where I, where my ideas are more certain are in character. So I need to be quite clear about who my characters are and what their voices are. But I like to leave myself a lot of leeway with what actually happens with the plot. And for me, that's a much more organic way to work rather than having a brilliant plot and then sort of superimposing characters Mm. designed to be catalysts. Huge thanks to Elizabeth. Her latest novel, The Party, is published by Fourth Estate and available now. Her memoir, How to Fail, is out in April and you can listen to her podcast, How to Fail, on all podcast platforms. I'm Daisy Buchanan. Thank you so much for joining me for some shelf abuse. You can find me on social media at NotRollerGirl on Twitter and on Instagram at the Daisy Bee. Say hello, suggest some guests and tell me about your biggest book crimes. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked, for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at ybooked at gmail.com. That's the letter Y, booked at gmail.com. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. I'll see you next time for more Foxy Fun. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 